if you don't realize that you're not as ethical as you think that you are, then nothing I'm going to tell you to fix it is going to matter because again, that's going to be for someone else or for some other organization that is bad. But by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not. So I think the very first thing you need to do is really figure out where your illusions are most problematic. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build flourishing organizations, one at heart, with high integrity and a healthy culture. My name is Tobias Sturluson and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. In this episode, I have a great honor to be joined by Anton Brunsel. Anne is the David E. Gallo Professor of Business Ethics at the University of Notre Dame. Her research interests focus on the psychology of ethical decision-making, examining why employees, leaders, and students behave unethically despite their best intentions to behave the contrary. Anne is the author, co-author, and co-editor of six books on the topic, including Blind Spots with Max Bazerman, Behavioral Ethics with David de Kremer, and Codes of Conduct with David Messick. Anne, it's a great privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Over the last number of episodes, we've been exploring ethical leadership, how to build a culture of integrity, and why we so often start valuing appearance over integrity. I've had the opportunity to talk to researchers and chief ethics officers and culture and compliance experts. And today I'm super excited to really dig deep together with you. But before we jump into the conversation, I just want to ask you a more personal question. What's sparked your interest in business ethics and and, and secondly, why do you think that this field is important for us as leaders to take seriously? So after working in engineering and then in uh, sales and marketing consulting, I decided academics was uh, my passion. And when I arrived at Northwestern, a fantastic group of researchers, Max Bazerman being one of them, who became my advisor pretty quickly, um, the focus really was on people's deviation from rationality. So why do people make bad decisions where bad was really defined from a rational perspective? And I realized that what I was actually really interested in is that same question, but the bad in this case was unethical. So it was why do people deviate from their values and from societal values in the same way that people deviate from optimality, say, in a, a behavioral economic perspective? So um, I kind of started with that. We were lucky to have Dave Messick just joined Northwestern faculty as a chair in ethics. So together we kind of began to forge a path. It was honestly a brand new path. No one really had done much of this to the point that four years later when I was interviewing on the job market, people would say things, schools, great schools that now have great ethics programs, but did not at the time would say things like, this is really interesting, Ann, but I'm just not sure how it's going to fit um, in a business school. Or a famous person at a great university said, this is all interesting, but what are you going to study when this is no longer a fad? So that was 1994, 95. So as I always say, I'm fairly happy that the world has still needed ethics, happy that I'm still employed, not happy that we continue to see scandal after scandal that keeps me employed. In 
2011, you wrote Blind Spots, Why We Fail to Do What's Right and What to Do About It, together with Professor Max Baserman, who we've had on an earlier episode. And I would really love for us to dig into the concepts of that book. And I, I find it just so interesting and so important for us to, to really understand as leaders, as HR and compliance professionals. But first, perhaps an obvious question. How do you define a blind spot from an ethics perspective? So blind spots, one way you can think about them is that they are, they are the obstacles. So the obstacles could be at the kind of individual psychological level. They could be at the social level. So how do my peers and groups that I belong to um, serve as an obstacle? And then they can be at kind of the organizational or institutional level that all of them at all three levels really contribute to our inability to see our own unethicality. Um, and as a result, we walk around this world kind of believing we're more ethical than perhaps we really are. What, what do you think is the, the consequence of that belief that we think that we are more ethical than what we really are? Why is that important? It's important that we realize that we aren't as ethical as we think that we are, that we do fall kind of prey to these positive illusions because otherwise we don't see really a need to change our behavior. So when I ask people to rate their ethicality on a score of zero to a hundred, I, I actually ask them to rate their honesty say, but I also ask them to rate things like decision-making ability and their aesthetic skills. So in a whole list, and what you find is that in general, people fall prey to what psychologists call positive illusions. We all think we're better than we are. So the averages, which I tell them, if you think your average put 50, when you aggregate people's averages, it should be 50. They all end up being, for the most part, higher than 50. But one thing I've noticed repeatedly over at least the past 20 years is that the average is highest for honesty. So while we exhibit positive illusions about a variety of traits, we actually almost exhibit hyper-illusions about our own ethicality. And what does that mean? It means that I don't really need to take that ethics course. I don't really need to re-examine my decisions. I don't need to think more about behaving ethically because guess what? I'm already really pretty good in comparison to the rest of the people. And the problem is you're just inaccurate in that assessment. I'm thinking that that's maybe as well why people early in your career would say that it's a fad because we as organizations, and we're going to come to that later and, and dig into that more in detail, but that we as organizations maybe think, it's not really a problem. Exactly. And so um, we can have illusions certainly at the individual level, and that can aggregate up as well to the corporate level. Just wanted to mention, because you take this fantastic example in the book on this topic, where you talk about how ethics books in an academic library are actually more often not uh, returned than, than other books. Is, is that correct? Yeah, there was a study that showed uh, that books, and, and there was a second part to this, which maybe is even more compelling, and that is kind of books that would only be, they wouldn't be used by the general public. They would only really be used by grad students and uh, PhD students who are studying a very specific topic and found that those ethics books were, I think, 50 to 150% more likely to be stolen than other books used by other grad students and professors studying different topics. And the reason for emphasizing that point is Simply saying you care about ethics, which you would assume that the PhD students and uh, the professors do, because they wouldn't be devoting their life to it, um, and knowing a lot about it, which again, we would assume that, that that group of people would, isn't enough to 
serve as a barrier to these blind spots. Um, it's not enough just, just wanting to be ethical and saying you know a lot about normative principles isn't enough uh, to solve kind of the ethicality dilemma. You opened the book with a story about the financial crisis in 2008 and two different explanations. I know one of, one of them was from President Barack Obama as to why it happened. And however, you point out that they even taken together don't fully explain why it happened. Could you take us into that story, what those perspectives are and, and kind of what perspectives you think is missing? Yeah, what you saw circulating, and I, I, it honestly could apply to most issues that we see in society that have an ethical per, uh, perspective or lens, were kind of the two prevailing perspectives. One is, is these were just crooks, that there were people that knowingly took advantage of others. The other is, is that it was systemic, right? It was institutionally based. Um, so low interest rates and deregulation, for example, in the financial crisis, with not really a perspective on the actor themselves. So, so I kind of think of this as the bad apple versus bad barrel situation uh, and explanation. And neither of them are wrong, actually. They're just incomplete. Yes, there were crooks that took advantage of the situation. And yes, the barrel, the institutional characteristics did contribute to it. But really what it ignores is all the people that unknowingly contributed to the problem. So not the people within this barrel that they were living in. So uh, mortgage lenders who really didn't understand or didn't question whether owners could afford the homes, traders and clients that really didn't seek to understand what a mortgage-backed security was and whether or not it was something that fit within their risk portfolio. And I even there's a trader um, who talked about Madoff, and, and you could see that form of thinking. He says something like, we started to think this wasn't possible, but then we decided not to ask any more questions. So it's not that they're excused. They're not. But what I always say is it takes a bad apple often to start things, but it's the all the people around them in the network that allow that behavior to go unquestioned that they don't pursue to see whether or not that behavior is right, that really contribute to the size, say, of an ethical scandal. One person alone generally can't create a huge scandal. Usually people are in the know, but don't know that they're in the know. They get brought in, then they become a part of the problem. And so to me, the explanation, bad apple, bad barrel, yes, but it's missing a whole other piece. So we have the the bad apples, I mean, people who are, I mean, making decisions out there who are unethical. And of course, they have a personal responsibility for that decision. We have the barrel, the kind of design issue of how we, what we incentivize as organizations and so on. And then we also have all the people who should have noticed and who became complicit to it. Is, is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And again, I have a quote from... Paul Gilbert, who says, it's our brains are not our responsibility. No, they're not our fault, sorry, but they are our responsibility, right? So the way we think, some of these are really innate, some of these blind spots, but that doesn't excuse us uh, from not trying to uncover them and correct them. And so again, people would say, well, I didn't know. And, and I would say, perhaps you're falling, for example, prey to motivated blindness, where you don't want to know because it's really not in your best interest to know. You're making money, so why question it? You argue that the way we often approach teaching ethics in academia, 
which I think has a lot in common with how we think about implementing values and ethical principles in our businesses and organizations, that it might not be that effective. What do you think is wrong with our common approach and how should we think about it in a different way? So again, my answer is that it's not wrong, um, but I think that it's incomplete. So when I started in this field, the dominant way of thinking was a normative ethics perspective, usually coming out of philosophy that poses really important questions. uh, And that is how should we act? So should we weigh consequences? Should we follow rules? And that's really important. And in fact, where I think you're seeing its importance in a contemporary example is in uh, driverless vehicles, right? So what normative rules do we put into autonomous vehicles in order to make trade-offs between who gets injured, for example? But I actually think this is too sophisticated for us because it suggests that I know this is an ethical dilemma and therefore I am going to apply the appropriate rule, whatever that is, or way off consequences, for example. And it assumes that A, again, I knew that decision and that there are no biases that come into play in making that decision. So for me, I really think before we can say to everyone, once the philosophers agree on which normative principle it is that we should follow, which may not ever happen, um, we first have to understand why it is that you and I deviate from our own ethicality, our own values, our own principles, not one that's societally imposed. And key here is we don't realize that we're doing so. So first we have to understand why does the I deviate? And then once I understand and have a handle on my blind spots, my obstacles, then we can begin to say, okay, now that we're all aware, let's think about what are some of the best principles to apply in this situation. So I I really think we first need a self-awareness and understanding of how it is that we are behaving unethically and the reasons why. I love that you you talk about starting to become aware of my own blind spots. And I also think in as as we have a lot of leaders, organizational leaders listening to this podcast to think as a leader, to, to kind of start with ourselves, to understand that we need to get this awareness and, and connected to, to what you were saying, I think that connects in with ethical fading which is one of those ways, as I understand it, in which we might think of a decision as that it doesn't have an ethical component. And it's, it's something that, that you and, and David Missick researched together and found together. Could you introduce us to what ethical fading is and how it operates in our leadership and in our organizations? I would really begin with Goffman, uh, who in the 70s talked a lot about the importance of framing decisions. So when you and I walk into, say, a restaurant, the first thing your brain does, consciously or unconsciously, is what kind of situation is this? And then it tries to map it on to similar situations. And the reason we do that is we can't explore all criteria for all types of different decisions for each decision that we make. We'd we'd never be able to actually make the decision. So in some sense, your brain creates a shortcut that says, what is this like? And then let me drop the relevant criteria for that type of decision. So is this a finance decision? If so, let's bring up all the financially relevant criteria. Is it a legal decision? Let's bring up all the legal criteria. And what you worry about is when that frame that you have, again, consciously or unconsciously pulled up, most likely unconsciously or subconsciously, 
is that those criteria that you're using don't include ethics. And when that happens, ethical fading occurs. That is, we don't, we don't consider, we don't see that the decision has ethical implications. And if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter how many principles you have or how much you care about ethics or how many times you've taken an ethics class, right? All that knowledge. We, we go back to the stolen books in the library. If you don't see this as an ethical decision, those criteria, those values, those principles simply aren't going to make it into your decision analysis. And that's when ethical fading occurs. You take a fantastic, or in many ways, it's a horrific example in your book of uh, from the production of the Ford Pinto. Could you share a bit of that story and how ethical fading came into play there? Yeah, so as many know, uh, the Ford Pinto had a problem with rear-end collisions. And in assessing how to decide whether to fix it, they knew about it. I think something like eight out of eight crash tests that they did failed. So they it wasn't an unknown problem. Um, but what they did is they employed a very common, sometimes required technique. Uh, for example, when you submit a government proposal, and that is a cost-benefit analysis. And what they did is they ended up weighing off the $11 per vehicle cost to fix it with the amount they'd have to pay in lawsuits for you know, lost lives, burned victims, cars that were destroyed. And when they did that, they said, it just doesn't make sense for us to provide the fix, that the, that the cost of providing the fix doesn't outweigh the benefit and, and relied pretty heavily on a cost-benefit analysis. In doing so, that may be what the numbers said, right? But is that the ethically right thing to do? It does raise the question for organizations. I mean, we certainly don't expect every corporation to go to a zero safety, but we do have to be able to understand that when we do, especially cost-benefit analysis, so other research I've done since then has further pointed to this. It turns out that when you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, it's been argued to depersonalize people, right? It creates it all down to a number. And that can evoke a different processing than if we're, for example, personalizing who might be the victim. A mother, the average victim is a mother of 35 with two children, right? By just looking at kind of the numbers and weighing them off, it actually can cause the ethics to fade from the decision. And as a result, you might not agree with this. And some of the people involved in that decision did not agree with it and have had a hard time since and been speaking around the, the country after that because they didn't see their role, right? All they did was see the calculations and say, okay, makes sense. And so as much as we want, as we can, we try to bring in individuals, we try to bring in empathy in order to at least reduce the likelihood that ethical fading is going to occur. How can we do that practically if we think as a leader, as an HR compliance professional, how do we make sure that that is a part of our decision-making, that it's a part of our conversations? So one would just be to be aware of the obstacles uh, that have been identified to this point. We also, in the book uh, and in our other research, talk about the conflict that exists between your want self and your should self. So your, your want self is kind of what you want to do, and your should is what you think you should do. And what we find is that, we hypothesize and find is that when I'm thinking about making decisions that have an ethical component, 
my should self dominates. And I say, of course, I would make the ethical choice. But in the moment, your want self can take over. And so there's several techniques you can think about for how to make sure that you're giving your should self in some sense the best possible chance of winning in the moment, because it tends to kind of take a, 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 it kind of fades into the background. So one is, is just simply to be aware that at the time of a decision, your want self is probably going to be pretty dominant. So I can give you a quick example. We, Tina Diekman, Adam Galinsky, and I looked at negotiations and found that when people are think they're going to be faced with a very aggressive component, they predict that they will be aggressive themselves, right? They're going to fight fire with fire. But it turns out the opposite is actually true in the real world. There's the, when people are faced with an aggressive component in the actual negotiation, they kind of become a wimp. And what we found in trying to understand this is that what I think are going to be my motivations are actually different than the motivations that occur in the moment. So when I'm predicting how I'll behave, and we could extend that to challenging a colleague who is aggressive and leading us down an unethical path. When I predict that I'm going to be faced, say, with such a person, I think that you know, winning, not getting bullied, standing up for my values is, are going to be dominant motivations. But at the time of the decision, it turns out getting along, not creating conflict are the dominant motivations. So one of the very first things you need to do is be realize that what you think your is going to be driving your decision is very different than what will actually drive your decision. And we have an overwhelming tendency to want to not create conflict. We want people to like us. We don't want to say things that are going to destroy a relationship. And then you have to give your should self the ability. So you kind of prepare for the want self and you give your should self the ability to shine. Um, part of that is to be honest, it's making sure that you're not depleted. So when people are really tired, they behave unethically. So morning larks behave more unethically in the afternoon and night owls behave more unethically in the morning. There's a study of Israeli judges when they were hungry, they were more likely to send people that could potentially be up for parole back to jail because that was the easy thing to do. So you see the percent that they actually consider, which is the harder decision for parole, goes way down right before meals and goes way up right after meals. Um, when you're stressed, so anxiety is related to unethical decisions. So I, I really think organizations have to think a lot about how to create atmos an atmosphere, an environment that allows people should self to flourish and certainly a 24-7 um, difficult goals makes it quite difficult. Something that I've more and more starting to, to see is that Organizations will many times talk about their values as these are our values that shape our behavior and that are kind of permeate our culture. But then when you look into the organization's behavior, when you look into the priorities, when you look into really who gets promoted, what happens within the organization, I more get the feeling that the values are somewhere there on, on the side And there are some other values that are really actually driving the decision-making. And is that basically also what you're, you're seeing in this, this research? So I think what you're really pointing out is this conflict between kind of the formal systems, right, of an organization and the informal aspects, right? So formal systems are those things that we can um, document, 
So it's, it's your code of conduct. It's the existence of a training program, right? It's the existence of a hotline or an ombudsman. Informal systems are in some sense what we feel, right? So it's the pressure I feel from my boss to just meet the numbers in whatever way is possible, which, which may or may not contradict what was um, explicit in the formal systems. It's the peers coming along to brand new people saying, this is how we really do things around here. It's the informal sanctions, right? Not getting promoted, uh, getting passed over. Um, and one of the things I've always said to organizations is you may think you know what your employees think is being rewarded, but you should ask them because they will tell you, this is what really gets rewarded in this organization. So we can have the formal reward system. And then, and even if they're wrong, it doesn't matter because what is driving their behavior is what they perceive to be, right? Joe has never been ethical in his life and he keeps getting promoted. Um, so I must behave like him in order to see those same outcomes. And so what you have to do is compare this kind of formal with the informal. And what we have found in our research is that the informal contributes almost 10 times more to observe misconduct than the formal. So we, I was happy, for example, FINRA, uh, which, you know, when you have an SEC violation might come in and audit your organization in the US in the financial industry. It used to be kind of the checking off of the box of the formal system, right? Do you have an ethics officer? Do you have a training program? And what you're seeing more are audits, like how do your reward systems contribute to ethical or unethical behavior? Are there subcultures that exist within your organization? What are the means by which you address the norms that go against um, your stated norms? So much more specific and really much more uh, um, focused on the informal, that the presence of formal just isn't enough. And in fact, Sometimes the formal gives us an opportunity to behave unethically, right? We think we're a good organization, and then somehow gives us this opportunity to behave badly. So there's a concept called moral licensing in the literature, which basically states that we're kind of on this teeter-totter, um, and if I think I did something good, I can kind of do something bad, and that way I'm still the same as I was. And if I think I've done... Uh, something bad, I might have to do something good in order to make up for it. So if organizations are walking around stating that they're ethical, they might in some sense have an opportunity <laughs> or a license to behave unethically. And one of my colleagues, Tim Walker in the finance department, he looked at sin stocks, which would be like gambling, alcohol, tobacco, and found that they were more likely to use words like ethics in their code of conduct, maybe driven by this moral licensing, right? So, um, and, and the problem that I've always stated is, let's say you're just okay with where you are ethically. You're saying, I'm a pretty good person. I don't really need to do any better. So this teeter-totter thing kind of works for me. Hey, I'd say that's wrong because we're never as good as we should be. It's, it's an, we should always have an aspiration to be better, but let's just say we accept that premise. The problem is because of confirmation biases, we are much more likely to remember what we did good <laughs> and much less likely to remember what we did bad. So I'm not compensating my bad with the good to the degree I'm compensating my good with the bad. So in some sense, we begin then to slide down towards our increasing unethicality. We have found in our work with organizations that, that one of the reasons why organizations uh, start valuing appearance over integrity 
which often leads to overlooking unethical behavior, is that they believe the lie that they are a good organization, just like you were talking about. And, and one of the reasons for that might be that we think that we have a noble mission or we have great values. And you talk about that, how we place that false hope in the ethical organization and how that actually organizations that are nonprofits that have, like, let's say, that, that kind of noble mission organizations can actually be even worse than other organizations. Could you dig in a little bit more into that concept? Yeah, I mean, so we find that in one of the last studies that examined nonprofits, government institutions, and for-profit, that there's really no difference in percent of observed misconduct. And again, as I was explaining earlier, that notion of moral licensing can be as a result of my codes of conduct, could also be the result of the mission that I believe that I am doing in this. Could kind of also create this means to an end, right? That is, my end is so great um, because of I'm in this wonderful organization and the work we do is so great. Um, that is really okay to do things that may be unethical in order to achieve that. So this is uh, one of the moral disengagement mechanisms cited, really start with Bandura. One of the mechanisms is what's called a moral justification. That is an appeal to, but it's for the greater good. And therefore, it's okay to behave this way. And certainly, when I feel that I'm working for a good organization, that may be like more likely. And again, we probably don't have a very accurate assessment of just how good it is that we're doing. Um, we, in some sense, are tempted to believe that what we're doing is good um, because that resolves any cognitive dissonance we might have in our mind, right? I want to be good. I want to work for organizations that are good. So I'll overlook all the things they're doing that maybe aren't uh, so good and continue to believe in this, which then fosters more unethical behavior potentially through this moral disengagement mechanism of moral justification. We, we have a very recent example in, in Sweden, the, the customs office. There was an incident where somebody said that he experienced a, a racist and sexist kind of treatment from an customs officer. And he filed charges and it became a big thing. And of course, there's words against words. So we don't know exactly what happened. But when a journalist heard about this story, he got to talk to one of the top managers at the Swedish customs office and asked her about this incident. And she said basically that because we have these values, we have values of professionality, treating everyone with respect, things like that. Because of that, we're, we're not going to do wrong. And so, so he, he asked her, so does that mean that you never do anything wrong? And she said, yes. I would say that that's what it means. And of course, that is such an extreme example. And I think most of us, we hear that and we can laugh at it. But at the same time, I think it is very indicative of how we often think. And what would you think, what is the better approach? So I, I think um, I think her answer is probably true. So, I mean, in her own mind, right? So one is dispelling the myth associated with our organization, but also the power of the formal kind of codes or mission statements, right? That we, people need to be aware that not only are they not very powerful in predicting behavior, but they also can be used as, in some sense, as a, a means by which this moral licensing um, can occur. I think we see the same thing audit in auditing firms here in the US, right? Where they fully believe that because of their, their profession and, and their code of conduct that they make unbiased decisions. And yet there's substantial evidence that suggests that they do not. So um, 
it's good. It doesn't mean professions or organizations shouldn't have these. To rely on them as the means by which to encourage ethical behavior is, is probably miscalculated. If you want to speak to our audience of, of leaders and HR and compliance professionals, and of course others as well, and just say what you think is a first step that we could be taking if we say that, okay, we want to build more ethical organizations. We want to actually live by those values that we profess or that we espouse. What do you think is one of the most important things for, for leaders to start doing from your perspective? So I always say, and I draw on Cicela Bach's book, Lying, which is the first thing I read uh, when I decided this was the path I wanted to take academically. And, and she uses a quote in there that I've used in almost every talk I've given, academic or corporate. And that is, if we could rid ourselves of self-deceit, we'd be capable of making more noble decisions. So I think the very first, nothing, if you don't realize that you're not as ethical as you think that you are, then nothing I'm going to tell you to fix it is going to matter. Because again, that's going to be for someone else or for some other organization that is bad. But by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not. So I think the very first thing you need to do is really figure out where your illusions are most problematic. So that can be um, by talking to people, can be by doing surveys. I, uh, there was a big governmental international institution that I worked with. And after working with them for about four years, one of the things they did is they had leaders, say, of a unit. That was really, really fragmented, very, very large organization. They had leaders rate their own ethicality, and then they had their subordinates rate their ethicality, and they began with where there was the biggest discrepancy in those ratings. It doesn't mean the employees were right. It doesn't mean the leader was right. It's just as a point of conversation. So in what areas are there concerns? And to do that, you have to be a pretty open organization. I always think you need to almost adapt a learning perspective uh, when it comes to ethicality. That is, how can I learn? How can I make this better? I was actually presenting at the OECD meeting in Paris back when we could travel. And someone asked me a similar question. And I said, one place to start is with your newcomers, right? They're the ones that probably are the ones most likely to realize, hey, what you just told me in training isn't at all what I'm seeing here. We know we become desensitized over time. Um, quote from a, someone on a prison execution team, it says the it gets easier um, every time we do it. And that's the same thing true with unethical behavior in organizations. So there's a lot of value in your, in your newcomers um, that can begin to notice. There's a simulation done by NASA and of pilots, and they took experienced pilots and brand new pilots, um, and they put an obstacle on the runway, and 25% of the experienced pilots missed it, but none of the newcomers did. So I, I, those, those would, I would begin to assess Assume you're not as ethical as you think that you are. Begin to get information through surveys, through focus groups, through talking to new people about the areas. Like I said, you may think your reward system is one thing, but you need to know what people think is being rewarded. And I think this, this also really connects to that. So many times we think about values as some inspirational words, and we actually don't really want to get to talk about the conflicts. And I think... What we need to do is just the opposite. We, we need to get the conflicts up on the table so that they become a part of the conversation. And I think you also, you know, then you move into, once you've accepted this, 
then you begin to look at your rewards and your sanctioning systems, right? Do you promote ethical behavior? We In the book, we give the example of J&J who um, in their training, they show four people that stood up to things they thought were unethical and then show that they're now all fairly high up in the hierarchy, vice presidents, et cetera, to, to um, let people know that we do value this. Again, it can't be window dressing though. Um, it has to be it has to be what is really occurring. And to get at that, you have to understand what employees think is being rewarded and then correct that. And I'm thinking as well connected to that, that it is always a moving target that we're never done, we're never there. I mean, I've, I've worked with organizations that have been seen as great workplaces and at the same time they've gone through real crisis based on, on healthy culture and ethical behavior. Exactly. And, and so understanding that, but you, again, you just have to begin with the premise. Where are we not as ethical as we think that we are? Rather than patting yourself on the back for all the philanthropic donations you give and the good that your products do in the world. Thank you so much, Anne. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to, to share your research, your insights, your learnings with us. And finally, I just want to ask, how can our audience connect with you and, and follow your work if they want to know more? My work obviously appears in academic journals and in some of the other um, outlets, business outlets that you mentioned in the beginning. I am potentially the only Anne Tenbrunsel in the world. So <laughs> Googling me might lead you to those. It's not a very common name. I'm also part of the Ethics and Compliance Institute. So I'm an academic fellow there. So if any of anybody's listening is a part of that, um, I'm sure we know each other because it's quite a nice group that meets uh, twice a year. I'm part of Ethical Systems, uh, which uh, seeks to bring information from the academic side into corporate world, kind of make it succinct and understandable. So those are other places by which you can can find my work. And like I said, if you just Google me, um, I, I think you'll find me. I've understood with you and, and a number of my other new researcher acquaintances that they are not necessarily the, the strongest on social media. <laughs> but that's... No, yeah, no, I, I do not have actually Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I keep getting requests for LinkedIn. I don't know if I used to be a part of that. I'm actually not a part of that either. So there's good reasons for that. We, we, we can talk another time about social media and the echo chambers and how it increases the conflicts in some sense that you and I were just speaking of. Absolutely. Absolutely. would love to have that conversation. And thank you again, Anne. And, and thank you to all our listeners. They're so grateful that you take the time to listen. And if you enjoy this conversation, I would just encourage you to rate the podcast to review it on iTunes, maybe share it with a friend. And it really helps us to, to get this message out that we can just help create this world with organizations, with healthy cultures, with high integrity. Mm -hmm.